You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. In Matthew 16, Christ is having a conversation with his disciples. And in this chapter, Peter makes the definitive statement in regards to the actual foundation of the church. Now, when you study out Peter's statement, he is not intimating, nor did he intend to claim that he was the foundation of the church. The rock that the church is built upon is not found in a man, nor is it found in a movement. It is not found in a preacher, and it surely is not found in a pope. But the church is founded, according to verse 18 of the chapter, Matthew 16, upon the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of the living God. Now, to prompt Peter to say that, he asks a question Jesus does in verse 15. He wants to hear what his disciples think about him. So he asks a pair of questions. The first question is indirect. He looks at his disciples and says, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? In essence, what he's asking is, what does the world think about me? The disciples respond and they say, well, basically they think that you're like John the Baptist. They think you're Jeremiah or maybe Isaiah or Elijah. You're you're just a preacher. You're a prophet. You're a rabbi like that. But then Jesus gets more direct. You see, he didn't really care what the world thought about him. He wanted to know what his followers thought about him. So then he looks at his disciples and say, now, whom do ye say that I am? What he's doing is he is inquiring from those who claimed to follow him the closest as to whether or not they truly understood who he was. In short, he said, I want to know what you think about me. In the hour in which we live, the perception of Christ and the opinions of who Jesus is are as varied as the voices that offer those opinions. Tonight, the world has no understanding of the biblical Jesus. And sadly, the church seems to know a little about the biblical Jesus. Today, I believe Christ has been condensed to fit into the box of whatever fits the narrative. He has televised. He has marketed. He's made palatable to the majority. And the modern day that we live in has fashioned our Jesus to kind of fit the mold of our own image. Today, Christ has been made for prime time. He's been regulated to some superficial feel-good statement. When we ask somebody about Jesus, they don't pull their definition from a Bible page. They pull an experience from their emotions or how they feel. You ask the average Christian, who is the Christ of the church? And usually they come back with some answer that is shallow and unscriptural. And they paint God as some spiritual security blanket or some supernatural spare tire. You don't hear a lot of talk today, even from saved people, about his sovereignty or his power or his righteousness. The average song that we sing in church today about Jesus paints our Lord to be a psychiatrist or a life coach or some wealthy benefactor or maybe a lucky charm. I'm afraid most people think Jesus is the baby of Christmas. Or they think he's the reason we have to go to sunrise service at Easter. You say, what about Jesus? And say, well, he breaks my chains and he makes the way and he sets me free and he makes me happy and he condones my desires. And and it's just a fluid thing. To the hippie, Jesus is a hippie. 
To the trendy, then Jesus is trendy. To the worldly, then Jesus has to be worldly. If you're emotional, well, then Jesus makes the hair on my neck stand up. And just as all other things in our day have been given a fluid definition, I believe so has the definition of Christ when it comes to the Christ of this era. You ask a hundred people on the street, who is Jesus? And you'll get a hundred different opinions and zero verses from the Bible. We live in an hour where there's a lot of vitriol against what we call cultural appropriation. And yet Christians are guilty, I believe, of cramming Jesus into the box of our culture. We package him in an era. We package him in a style. We package him in a target market that we want to reach. What I mean is he's been secularized and commercialized and modernized and feminized and humanized and Americanized. And if we ask the question today, who is Jesus? We'd pull out a definition from our own opinion and not the King James Bible. Tonight, the Christ of the last days and the Christ of the church is not defined by Hollywood Christianity or Hollywood movies or Hollywood preachers or the backslidden Christian down the road but the Christ of the church is the Christ of the scripture in John 5 39 he said search the scripture for in them you think you have eternal life and they are they which speak of me perilous times could not be an any more accurate description of the day that we live in the word perilous means involving grave risk, hazardous, or dangerous. And these are days where the Christian, if he's a true Christian, must have the attitude of Paul to not count his life dear unto himself, to count all but loss to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity has never been a call to celebrityism or superstar status. It is a call to be scorned, slandered, and persecuted by this world. Today, the general public is anti-Christian. The public policies of our day are anti-Christian. The majority of churches today seem to even be anti-Christian. In fact, many supposed Christians seem to be anti-Christian. And everything that we see happening today is preparing for that moment where the source of every anti-Christian ideology and anti-Christian movement steps onto the scene in the form of the anti-Christ. That's why we see this misunderstanding today. We're living in what the Bible calls the last days. And the world is getting more wicked and wicked as every week passes. So let me ask you, how are we going to press on? How are we going to go forward? How do we find faith to continue? I think it has to be anchored in the person of Jesus Christ. I think that if we could come to fully comprehend who our Christ is, it would give us a shout. It would give us some courage. It would give us some zeal, some faith to stand in the day in which we're living in. I ask myself the question, why is it there is so much confusion when it comes to who Jesus is? Why is it that so many people have some weird, muddy misunderstanding of who the Lord is? Don't you think that if the devil is going to attack in this day, he wants to get people messed up when it comes to who Jesus is? You know why? Because if you and I figure out who Jesus is, man, you can't stop a Christian like that. You don't discourage a church like that. We'll be living on the victory side and standing on shouting ground when we get a good glimpse of who Jesus is. It is far more beneficial to know who Jesus is than to know how to balance a budget, hit a golf ball, cast a fishing rod, the weather report for the next week, or anything else like that. So tonight what I want us to do is to look into the Bible and let the Bible teach us who Christ is in the church. The book of Revelation, for the most part, is a book of prophecy. 
the majority of the text deals with things yet to come. But also in this book, it covers some things that have already happened and some things that are currently in place. In Revelation chapter 1, we see a glimpse through Paul's, or rather John's pen at who Christ is in the church age. In verse 10, John hears a thunderous voice like a trumpet that calls out behind him. I preached on that in the first message of the series. The testimony that John hears from that voice is, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. So whoever it is that is speaking to John is obviously eternal, he is everlasting, and he is immutable. He is the source of all things, and he is existent all by himself. Now that arouses the interest of John. John is on the Isle of Patmos, isolated, alone, and as a prisoner. He hears that voice speaking with such authority, he wants to turn and find the source of the voice. Now, I mentioned this. When John first turns, he does not see the source of the voice. He sees some candlesticks that are shining and then one in the mist. Now, the application was this. We got to keep the light on so the world can see Jesus in the church. Now, imagine John. John has heard this voice. He wants to see it. He begins to peer through these golden candlesticks, seven of them representing those churches in Asia Minor. He hears that voice of authority and power. Maybe he squints his eyes and he focuses his vision. He looks there through those candlesticks. And as he looks through the candlestick, one begins to take form and one comes into view. You better believe that would encourage that man on that island in those circumstances. You see, John is in his own tribulation, if you will. He's living in a dark day, and here's a voice that could change his life. I mean, he hadn't heard a voice like that in a long time. In the midst of trouble, he hears that voice like a trumpet. Let me apply this. I like this. I'm glad John did not keep looking his own way. But I'm glad when he heard that voice, he decided, I'll turn the way of the voice. You know, we'll never have revival until we're willing not to look our own way. And when we hear the voice, we'll say, you know what, I'll go in the direction of the voice. Now, John's moved his head. He gets a vision in the midst of those candlesticks. In verse 13, it tells us exactly who it is that John saw when he was in the spirit on the Isle of Patmos. In verse 13, look what it says. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Now, I won't read yet because we're going to get into it, but he sees this human-like figure taking shape in the midst of the candlestick. Now, I like what it says. He said he saw one like unto the Son of Man. Can I say it's because there is only one. There are no others. Just one. There's nobody like the Lord. Now think about John. John saw Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. John saw Jesus transfixed to the cross on the mountain of Calvary. John saw Jesus transformed in his resurrected body. And now he sees him as transcendent and translated in majesty and glory at the right hand of the Father. As we study these verses, we're beginning to see who Jesus really is. So let's ask the question. Is he the Jesus of the hippie? Well, let's find out. Is he the Jesus of the emotional one? Well, let's find out. Is he the Jesus of the Hollywood movie? Well, let's find out. Is he the Jesus of mainstream Christianity? Let's find out. The old song said he's more than just a story. He is the king of glory, and I'm glad I know who Jesus is. In these last days, I don't care about self-identification. I need to be consumed with Christ identification because if I find out just who he is, it'll help me live on the winning side. I like this statement. Let me read it to you, and then we'll break down these verses. One Bible commentator said, I cannot know Jesus through another's acquaintance with him. I must know him myself. 
I must know him on my own account. It will be an intelligent knowledge. I must know him, but watch this. I must know him not as the visionary dreams of him, but as the word reveals him. Let's look at what the Bible says about the Christ of the church. Let me give you seven things. So if I preach on each of those things two minutes, that's 14 more minutes and we're right on time. So we're going to get out late. All right, number one, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm serious. All right, number one, consider with me the Christ of the church. Number one, think about his location. This one was make a Baptist shout on a Wednesday night. Look what it says in verse 13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. You see, the very first thing that John notices about Christ in the church age is this, his location. He mentions it specifically, and he nails it down accurately. He said, I'll tell you where Jesus is. He's not on the peripheral. He's not in the back row. He's not hiding out in the parking lot somewhere. He said, I'll tell you where Jesus is. He is dead smack right in the middle, bullseye, center eye of the storm in the church of God. You say, where can you find Jesus? At the lake? I'm not sure if he's at the lake or not. Can you find Jesus at the golf course? I don't. I usually lose my salvation at the golf course. You say, can you find Jesus at the mall? That's the only thing you won't find at the mall. You say, where can you find Jesus? You can find Jesus. Mark it down within the church. I mean, the church that preaches the Bible and has doctrine from the word of God, the true biblical New Testament local church, Jesus is in the midst. He said it in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. He said, not on the outside looking in. He said, but I'm right in the middle of that crowd. You can see him there in his church. You think about that. He's got perfect attendance. He never misses. You don't have to call him and get him out of bed to come. You don't have to offer him any kind of prize to sit in a pew. You don't have to pay his bus fare to get him to show up. He's there waiting on you when you come. He likes to go to church. He loves the church. You'll find him there in the midst of the church. There's his location. I think that was less than two minutes. All right, number one, number two. Christ and his church is location. Number two, Christ and his church. Think about his likeness. You see what it says in verse 13? And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Now, I have a book in my office, and I read it. And the man said of this title, the universal relationship that's revealed in the title Son of Man and the responsibilities attached thereto cover the widest range in regard to the absolute sufficiency and sustainability of Christ as our Savior, Shepherd, and Sovereign Sustainer. There's a lot of titles that you can tag to the name of Jesus. In fact, all throughout the scripture, there is name upon name ascribed to the Lord. But I think one of the most powerful titles that can be given to our Lord is this title, the Son of Man. In fact, if you study the Gospels, the title that Jesus uses for himself more than any other is the title, Son of Man. You think about the title, Son of Man, and it denotes the humanity, but also the heavenly aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a title of condescension. It is a title of compliance. It is a title of his competency, but it's also a title of conquering. Here it is. As the Son of Man, he is the bodily revelation of God. As the Son of Man, he is the reconciler and redeemer of fallen man. As the Son of Man, he is the righteous king that has rise to the throne. He was made, Philippians 1, 
son in the likeness of man. The son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. As the son of man, he satisfied every aspect of the law. As the son of man, he was our near kinsman to redeem us from sin. As the son of man, he's our high priest that serves at the altar in heaven. As the son of man, he's the first fruit of resurrection, the example that we're soon to follow and be with him in glory. He was the son of man before his birth. He was the son of man at his birth. He's the son of man as he ministered. He's the son of man as he walked on water. He's the son of man at Calvary. He's the son of man at resurrection. And he's still the son of man up in glory. It's not just a title of his condescension and humility. It's also a title of his holiness and the fact he's a conqueror. If you read, oh man, if you read Daniel chapter number 7 and you study it out, there is one that walks into the throne room, has an audience with the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days, the God, Jehovah God, on his throne. But then the Son of Man walks in. And the Son of Man is given an everlasting dominion and the promise of conquering and power unmatched to overthrow the enemies of God. You say, who is that? That's our Savior. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I look inside the church and I'll tell you who I see. I see a conquering Savior there. I see one who's a sympathetic high priest there. He's lowly but not weak. He's humble and yet he's holy. He cares and he can do what I cannot do. Adam, the first son of man, lost it all. But Jesus, the second Adam, got it all back. Hallelujah for Jesus. Amen. Number one, his location. Number two, I like this, his likeness. Number three, I like this, his lordship. Look what it says. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, but watch this, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and gird about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. That is not like the Christ that John saw on, on Calvary. Oh my. On the cross of Calvary, when John saw that spectacle as the only disciple not to desert the Lord, he saw Jesus on the cross of Calvary and he saw him a mangled mass of humanity. He saw holes in his hands and in his feet. He saw piercings in his brow from the thorns. He saw a sign that had been riven by the spear of a Roman guard. He saw spit dripping from his body and bruises upon his brow. He saw Jesus in what looked like a conquered and defeated state. But now John takes in the same. But can I say he's different now. There's something different about this man now. He doesn't look like he looked on the cross. Now he looks a little bit different. He sees him high and exalted. He sees him in majesty and glory, radiating power. It is not a question tonight if all men are going to say that he is Lord. The only question is when all men will say that he is Lord. You can choose to call him Lord now and let him be your Savior, or you can wait till you bow at the white throne and get cast into a lake of fire. But whether you say it tonight or or you wait till eternity. I'll say this. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him. That the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. And every tongue will confess. I don't care who you are. What you think you know. He is Lord of all. He's the Lord of glory. He's the Lord of God. Thank God he's the Lord of lords and King of kings. Oh my. Think about his garment. Garment from top to bottom. No seam in it. A seam is imperfection no matter how good the seamstress. But this one has no stop to it. Has no 
hitch in it, has no imperfection in it, speaks to the fact he's everlasting and he's wholly perfect. He's flawless, he's faultless, but also that robe is speaking of his priesthood, also of his royalty. In Isaiah chapter number 6, Isaiah sees the throne room. He sees the Lord upon the throne, and the Bible said he saw the Lord in his train filled the temple. Boy, there's a lot to that. He's not talking about a train that goes choo and not that. No, no, no. He's talking about his robe. He said, I saw the Lord there on his throne. He said, he had such a big robe. It filled that place that nothing else can fill but glory. He said, it filled up the entirety of the throne room. I began to study that out, and you can study it for yourself. But in those days when a king would conquer another kingdom, it was customary to take the robe of the conquered king and then attach it to the robe of the conquering king. And the longer the train, the more he had conquered. And here he said, boy, history train was so big it filled every aspect of the throne room up in glory you know why it is because there hadn't been a principality that he hadn't toppled there's not been a dominion he hadn't taken down there's not been a little K king that the big K king hadn't hadn't taken over he is the king over all the potentate over all his garment then I think about his girdle it said he's girdled about the paps that's a word for chest wrapped around his heart wrapped around his chest is a golden girdle it's a reminder of the high priest but that gold speaks of his righteousness his virtue and his purity. In Isaiah 11, it talks about the righteousness wrapped around that branch that comes out. Thank God, his garment, his his hair, it's white. I should encourage some of y'all. Some of y'all are way more Christ-like than others tonight. His hair is white. That speaks of dignity, honor, wisdom, reverence. But then Brother Birchman and I were talking, and I'm going to preach it the way I stole it from him. I saw a picture on my phone yesterday of me and Brother Bertram. Where is he at? Like eight or nine years ago, preaching together in a Bible conference. We look better now than then even. Both of us. Anyway, I remember. But we were talking about this. If you study it out, Song of Solomon tells us what Jesus looked like on earth. He wasn't white with blue eyes and blonde hair. Everybody all right? He had dark skin and raven hair, black hair. Looked like a Jew would in the Middle East, right? But now his hair is white. Now, you hear the theories, well, that's because he's the Ancient of Days, but he was that before he ever drew breath at Bethlehem. So what is it? You know what it is. You watch a man go through eight years of the presidency or two weeks of pastoring (laughs) or a day and a half of marriage, and you watch this. And you know how extreme hardship can age somebody. You know what that white hair? That similitude, it says his hair was white like wool. But then it also said it was white like snow. There's only one other place in your Bible that uses that similitude, and that's Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as what? Red like crimson, they'll be white like... So what that is, is it's a reminder throughout all eternity, he suffered for our sin. And he, and he still bears the mark of that suffering even in eternity. You think about our glorified body. Our glorified body won't have one little, little sign of any suffering we ever endured on earth. Every bit of sign of suffering in us will be gone, 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 gone in eternity. But there will be signs of suffering in eternity. But not on you and I, but on the Savior. It'll be there because of us. But all throughout heaven, in a glorified manner, maybe radiating light, I don't know, he'll have nail prints in his hands and nail prints in his feet. He'll have scars on his brow and in his side. And that white hair, a reminder to us as we sing, holy, 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 worthy is the Lamb. It'll be a reminder to us, I know how I made it. 
I made it by the grace of God. Woo. Here, think about his eyes. We gotta go quick. His eyes are as a flame of fire, piercing eyes, comprehending eyes, eyes of consequence and comfort. It was a good day when Noah found grace in his eyes. Well, boy, it's a scary day in Judges when the eyes of the Lord ran to and fro and beheld the evil and the good. Then his feet, his feet are like brass, but brass that is white hot from the furnace. Brass in the Bible is always a picture of judgment. What John sees is a Lord who's ready to come back and execute judgment on this sinful world. By the way, that's why I know rapture happens before that because I'm going to be able to watch him when he puts all things under his feet. I won't be under his feet. Amen. We'll see all things put under his feet. Then he hears his voice. It's a voice like thunder, a voice of many waters. You ever been by a waterfall before? You go and hear all those waterfalls, Yosemite, or go somewhere where there's rushing water. His voice is like if you collected every waterfall in this world, multiplied it a million times, and added an infinity to it. His voice is so powerful when it speaks. All right, we got to go quickly. I see his location, his likeness, his lordship, but watch this. What about his love? Verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars. That's an encouraging statement. Because when you drop down and read verse number 20, it tells us exactly who the stars are. It said those seven stars that he sees, those seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. You say, what's that mean? Those are the representatives of that church, the messengers of the church, the pastors of that church. But I think also it just means in this sense, the collective body of those churches, he's got them in his hand. Isn't that amazing? You study your Bible and you look throughout the Bible. He has a lot of things in his hand. He's got the seven sealed scroll in his hand. He's got a sharp sickle in his hand. He's got the universe in his hand. He's got a golden censer in his hand. He's got the city of Zion, it says, in his hand. But better than all that, he has you and I there in his hand. I think about how Noah was safe within the ark. We're much safer than Noah. We're not held fast by a bunch of boards glued together in the form of a boat. We are held fast in the hand of our Father, in the hand of the Savior. We sing that song, there is an unseen hand. But now John gets to see the unseen hand. And when he sees the unseen hand, he sees you and I held firmly in its grasp, like a father holds his child or a shepherd holds its lamb or a merchant would clutch his pearl. We are in the hand of God. Be not dismayed. Whatever be tied, God will take care of you. All right, got to move. Number five, I see his location, his likeness, his lordship, his love. Verse 16, the second half, his lethality. He's lethal. Why? Because out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. That's different from that meek and lowly Jesus. There's not a friend like the Lord. That's true. But he's not the lowly Jesus. He's the exalted, glorified Jesus. And when he comes back, he's not looking to build bridges or pass out free uh, bracelets to say, what would Jesus do? Say amen right there. He's not, looking to, he's not looking to bring everybody together and say, well, now we're all brothers and everything. No. Out of his mouth will come this sword that cuts both directions. And it reminds us the word of God prevails. That word is of awesome authority, abiding authority, and absolute authority, and there is no voice like it. The Bible said where the word of a king is, there is power. All right, number six. His location, his likeness, his lordship, his love, his lethality. This should have been a series probably. And then number six, his loftiness. Look at verse 16, the second half. After the sharp two-edged sword, now watch the description. This is good. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. 
Now watch the response. And when I saw him, a lot changes when you see him, by the way. He said, when I saw him, I fell. He didn't say, I didn't stand. I didn't put on a show. I fell. I fell at his feet as dead. And then he laid his right hand upon me. Now think about his loftiness. The Bible describes Jesus. When John saw him, he is likened unto the sun. There's a lot of interesting things about the sun. You think about how the sun gives life to the earth. Everything in this world owes its life physically to to the sun. You think about when the sun rises and sets. When the sun goes down, it goes down red. When the sun comes up, it comes up red. Well, when Jesus died, he died red, a bloody mess. But when he comes back the second time, he's going to have his vesture dipped in blood. He'll come back red as well. The Bible said, as the sun shineth in his strength. I looked up some things via Google or whatever, and it says this, the sun is big enough and bright enough for every square meter of earth, it produces 127,000 lumens. That means nothing to me at all. I have no idea what that means. I think lumens are those things we look at at the zoo or whatever. They jump around and or lemurs or lumens. I have no idea. So I Googled this. What's a lumen compared to a watt? I know what a watt is. That means this. For every square meter of earth, the sun produces 1 million 587,500 watts of light. Jesus is likened under the sun shining in his strength. His countenance, that means his appearance, his visage, his expression. Malachi said, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. What that is a picture of is this. It's a picture of power. It's a picture of majesty. It's a picture of glory. It's a picture of his radiance. He is not hip. He is holy. He's not down to earth. He is highly exalted. He is not carnal. He is deity. He's not some second thought. He is God in the highest. And when John saw Jesus in glory like that, two responses. Number one was love. Number two was lifeless. The first thing he said is, I get a decrease and let him increase. And the second thing he said is, I just wish I was dead and let him have center stage. High and lifted up. The embodiment of all virtue, the express image of God. Holy, holy, holy. In eternity, Jesus is going to get his glory. One last one. His location, his likeness, his lordship, his love, his lethality, his loftiness. But what about this? Lastly, his longevity. When John saw the Christ of the church, he saw his longevity. Look at verse 17 and then verse 18. The second part of verse 17, he said this, saying unto me, fear not. Why? He said, because I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and what, I like the I am's all throughout this, by the way. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. So Jesus begins to testify, John, what you're seeing, don't worry. This isn't the only time you'll be able to see this show. This thing's going to have no season cut off. It's going to run on and run on and run on. They're going to put us up for all eternity. John, don't worry about it. If you blink, it'll be here when you open your eyes again. He said, there's no expiration date on this. Your milk might sour, your bread might mold, but I'm going to be the same tomorrow as I am today. He said, I was there yesterday, I'll be there tomorrow, and I'm there right now. I'm eternal God, everlasting Father, the I am, I'm the in the beginning God. I was there, I am there, I shall be there. All throughout the Bible, verse 8, verse 11, verse 17, verse 18, just in this chapter, Jesus talks about the fact that he'll never die, he is everlasting, he is eternal, he's always there, he abideth, he's, he ever liveth. Thank God for Jesus. He'll be there Alive, glorified, omnipotent, and king, and he'll do it, be there forever. But then watch this. He has the keys of death and of hell. 
Death affects the body. Hell affects the soul. And Jesus says, no, don't worry. I'm everlasting, and by the way, I've got the keys to the grave, and I've got the keys to the devil's house. I'm in control. I have the keys to both. Let me close and give you this illustration. A man was walking down a pathway in the woods, and in the middle of the pathway, he saw a rose blooming there. And that rose was beautiful to look at, and he plucked the rose from the pathway. And when he plucked the rose from the pathway, all of a sudden, a mountain before him opened up. And when that mountain opened up, it exposed jewels, gold, precious things, treasure within the mountain. That man, like anybody would, rushed in there to get all the treasure he could muster, and he began to grab gold and began to grab precious jewels and diamonds. And a little voice whispered, you haven't gotten the best yet. Don't forget the best. Don't forget the best. He thought, man, I must have missed something. So he went and grabbed more things and began to get his arms full of precious jewels and gold. And the voice said, don't forget the best. He grabbed as much as he could. And he walked out of that mountain with his arms full. And all of a sudden that mountain closed up behind him and everything in his arms vanished away. And the voice said, you don't get any of the treasure because you didn't get the best. And he said, well, what's the best? And the voice said, the rose is the best. Because it was the rose that unlocked the treasure in the first place. Can I say the best thing about the church is not you and I? The best thing about church is not the singing or the program. The best thing about the church is the rose of Sharon. And if you and I in this last, these last days get a good glimpse of who Jesus is, I think it will encourage us that revival can happen. And we can still do a work for the glory of God because He is the conquering Christ. And He's our soon coming King. Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.